Hello, and welcome to Prism of the Past, a weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be getting into some religious territory. So before I do anything, let me preface this by saying that I wholeheartedly believe that everyone is entitled to their own faith, their own beliefs, and their own religion or lack thereof, so long as it's not hurting someone else. I'm not trying to tell anyone what to believe in this video. And honestly, the inspiration for this topic actually comes from Lil Nas X and his recent music video, Montero. So many people were bothered by how hell and the devil or Satan was depicted and danced on in the video. And I loved the video. I got an absolute kick out of it. I thought it was brilliant. But it really did get me questioning how the fear of Satan himself has been used and changed throughout history. Although this is an extreme generalization and more of an overview of how Satan has changed, I'm mostly talking about the Christian version of Satan and the sort of red horned popularized depiction many of you may know, and the one that was featured in the music video. So today we're going to start by diving right into how the devil has been viewed in more ancient times and who he was back then. Now, the devil himself has gone through many changes over the years and gone by many different names. Though we might know him as a sort of classic red skin, fork tail and horn demon, it is said that the Bible is actually very vague about what Satan is and what they look like. According to the BBC, it was an Egyptian god, Bes, that gave the Christian devil his looks. They write, Although he never had a state-sanctioned cult, Bez was tremendously popular in ancient Egypt. He was worshiped in ordinary homes where he was associated with many of the good things in life, sex, drinking, music, and merriment. He also had an important protective function and was often invoked during childbirth, hence his appearance in the divine birth house at Dendera. In other words, although to modern eyes, he may appear frightening, he was actually decent. Friend to beer-swilling carousers and expectant mothers alike, he warded off noxious spirits like a gargoyle on a medieval church. Bess is something of an anomaly from a historical point of view. Most Egyptian gods appear in profile, but Bez is brazen, frontal, and comical. Ultimately though, he was more of a mischievous and irrelevant character that was a god for commoners rather than royalty. It was also said that sex workers may have placed tattoos of Bess near their genitalia to stave off sexually transmitted diseases. As a result of his celebrated nature, craftsmen produced objects decorated with his image. Ancient Egypt was an important source for Christian artists. Imagery of the goddess Isis and her son Horus offered a prototype for representations of the virgin and child. In a similar fashion, Bess was an important anecdote for the devil. Occasionally, he appeared with a forked tail, a serpent, or with serpents issuing from his body, all of which would become attributes of Satan. In the mosaic of hell dating from about 1280 and attributed to Copo di Marcovaldo in the Florence Baptistry, snakes emerged from the ears of the devil in the largest image of Satan in Europe. Little amulets of Bess were exported all over the Eastern Mediterranean. He may have influenced depictions of Greek demons and satyrs, which in turn influenced depictions of the devil. There's obvious similarities between Satan and the Greek goat god Pan, literally demonizing them and his features. Another source states, many of the devil's animalistic traits can be traced back to influences from earlier religions. One of the first was found in ancient Babylonian text, wicked demons named Lilitu. 
These winged female demons flew through the night, seducing men and attacking pregnant women and infants. In the Jewish tradition, the demoness evolved into Lilith, Adam's first wife. Lilith came to embody lust, rebellion, and ungodliness, traits later linked to the Christian devil. Another ancient deity who became associated with Satan was Beelzebub, which translates roughly to Lord of the Flies. Beelzebub was a Canaanite deity named in the Old Testament as a false idol that the Hebrews must shun. Of course, the role of Satan has been debated many times throughout history as well, not only his image. One source states, Satan as the ugly fallen angel who is the source of all evil was not the earliest understanding of Satan's role in the Bible. In fact, Satan hardly makes an appearance in the Hebrew Bible. The book of Job is basically his only biblical role and there Satan appears as the accuser of people. This was his first role. Satan is the angel who constantly is talking smack about people. In fact, the word Satan is also a verb meaning to accuse. In the book of Job, Satan first establishes his role as the accuser. He bets God that the only reason Job is faithful to God is that Job is successful in life. Satan bets that if Job's blessings are taken from him, he will curse God. Satan loses his bet. That's the book of Job. And that's pretty much it for Satan in the Hebrew Bible. There are a couple of other references to Satan in the Hebrew Bible, but they all merely rephrase his role as the accuser. Eventually, however, in the New Testament, Satan went beyond the role of accuser and took on the role of the tempter, which is when Jesus overcame the three temptations from Satan and thus proved strength over him. However, Satan as a source of all evil, according to this source, is primarily the result of medieval theology and superstition. Another source claims that he evolved during the height of the Persian Achaemenid Empire and was adopted by Jews living under Persian rule at that time. His formal name, Satan, derives from the Hebrew ha-setan. Ha means the, and Satan means opposer or adversary. The name described his eventual function as the opposer of God's creation. Greek diabolos, English devil, meant accuser, slanderer, again, describing his role. The concept of Satan emerged over time and in phases. There is, of course, debate about Satan's appearance in the Garden of Eden. However, one source claims that when Genesis was written, the concept of the devil had not yet been invented. Explaining the serpent in the Garden of Eden as Satan would have been as foreign of a concept as referring to a UFO or a smartphone back in those times, it didn't exist. This source also explains that it's difficult to pinpoint exactly when the accuser took on a sinister role or how the Prince of Darkness evolved exactly, but there are a few indicators as to Satan's origin story. One source said that it was Christian theologists that concluded, quote, if God created the universe and everything God creates is good, then Satan must have been something good that went bad, end quote. In other words, a fallen angel. Other religions such as Islam have also shared these views. According to one source, Iblis in Islam, the personal name of the devil, possibly derived from the Greek diabolos at the creation of humanity, God ordered all his angels to bow down in obedience before Adam. Iblis refused, claiming he was a nobler being since he was created of fire, whereas human beings came of only clay. For this exhibition of pride and disobedience, God threw Iblis out of heaven. His punishment, however, was postponed until judgment day, when he and his host will have to face the eternal fires of hell. Until that time, he is allowed to tempt all but true believers to evil. As his first demonic act, Iblis, referred to in this context as Al-Shaitan, entered the Garden of Eden and tempted Eve to eat of the tree of immortality, causing both Adam and Eve to forfeit paradise. 
Other sources say that though this idea of Satan being a tempter or accuser may have existed, it was the Greek daemon, a spirit or minor divinity who engaged with humans that informed a key aspect of the new prince of darkness kind of evil. From the third century AD, a mystical philosophy known as Neoplatonism incorporated theology, invoking daemons to request favors. Neoplatonism was not wholly incompatible with Christianity, but communicating with spirits was. Rituals could not sway the Christian God into granting human wishes. Prayers were only evidence of piety. If daemons were indeed doing a person's bidding, they had to be in league with Satan who helped mortals to deceive them and cause their downfall. So then, now that we know a little bit about the image and role of the devil and how it has evolved, let's take a look at how the red-skinned horned devil emerged and where all the fear and even devilish propaganda comes from. According to one source, it was Justin Martyr, an early Christian apologist and martyr that provided some of the basic assumptions for what would later become the Western world's devil. It was he who made the all important connection between the serpent that tempted Eve and the dragon or the devil in the New Testament. Makes you wonder what he's got wrong, right? Like why are so many people believing that the snake and the devil are the same thing just because this Justin guy says so, right? But anyway, most medieval Christians did ponder the devil and most of what Americans see today when they envision the devil emerged out of popular folk culture in the middle ages. Late medieval dramas tended to, and I quote, transform the devil and his demons into comedic figures that frolicked, fell, and farted in the background of medieval mystery plays, end quote. And no, I'm not kidding. Apparently even a hundred years ago, fart humor was a thing. But what changed? How did Satan go from being some farting trickster to being the cause of all evil? Well, it wasn't exactly fast, but one event is certainly regarded by many sources as a catalyst, the Black Death. In the Middle Ages, especially during the Black Death in the 1300s, depictions of the devil began to focus on the gruesome horrors of hell, reflecting on the mood of that time. And I know I'm skipping over a few thousand years here, and I'm sure there's a lot, a lot more to know about the devil or how Satan evolved and was interpreted, but thankfully this era is a bit more documented and a bit more specific, so it's easier to work with. According to scholar George Childs Cohn, the plague was attributed to any and all of the following, corrupted air and water, hot and humid southerly winds, proximity of swamps, lack of purifying sunshine, excrement and other filth, putrid decomposition of dead bodies, excessive indulgence in foods, particularly fruits, God's wrath, punishment for sins, and the conjunction of stars and planets. Religious fanatics asserted that human sins had brought the dreadful pestilence. They roamed from place to place, scourging themselves in public. There was panic everywhere with men and women knowing no way to stop death except to flee from it. One attempt at a cure for the Black Death was to even find and kill a snake meant to represent Satan, chop it into pieces and rub the parts over swollen buboes. This massive epidemic of the bubonic plague and this era of the Black Death truly changed the way humanity operated at the time and as a result, how they viewed evil. I can't exactly blame people for all hell breaking loose. I mean, I thought, you know, our pandemic was and still is awful. Imagine one that lasted at least five years and killed between 30 to 50% of the population. Pretty sure my view of the world might change a bit too. The Black Death was attributed to some sort of supernatural force, though many different religions viewed it as either a blessing or a curse. Although this is a massive generalization and just what the majority held at the time, the Christian view was that the punishment was a punishment from God for humanity's sins, or that was caused by bad air, witchcraft, and sorcery. 
However, the Muslim view tended to say that the plague was actually a gift from God that provided martyrdom for the faithful whose souls were transported to paradise. From here, fascination with Satan grew. According to a source, this fascination with Satan overlapped with, ironically, the birth of the age of skepticism. The age of Montaigne was also the age of the witch hunts. While we rightly connect early modern Europe with the scientific revolution and the rise of the nation state, it was also a historical moment in which age old fears and old beliefs suddenly and horrifically made their way into emerging jurisprudence. Yet another incredibly noteworthy event that played into this during the early modern period was the Great Reformation. The Reformation was, of course, when the Protestantism began and Martin Luther famously published his 95 Theses. The BBC states, when the church split during the Reformation, both Catholics and Protestants accused each other of being influenced by the devil. Propaganda used playful and grotesque imagery to show this corruption at work. Another source states, no sooner had Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg than the attacks began. Here we see a reforming minister officiating at a marriage of the fool and the she-devil from Thomas Murner's anti-Lutheran pamphlet. Circa 1518 and Martin Luther triumphing over the devil in the garb of a monk. The Protestants with their greater emphasis on the printed word proved themselves masters of an accompanying image too. This demonic anti-papist caricature appears on the title page of the Opera Poetica and the Knightly Reformer Ulrich von Houten, printed by Henry Petrie at Basel in 1538. A frequently told tale among Protestants was that of two Dominican monks burned at the stake by order of the Inquisition for allegedly signing pacts with the devil. The devil no longer had a passive role anymore. The church believed that the devil sought out women as partners and the women would be signing pacts and engaging in evil on his behalf, where of course, those women were then labeled as witches. In part because of the accusations of collusion and because of the Black Death, the shift went from people being deceived by Satan to people actively colluding with Satan against God. And before we continue to speak on the witch hunts that would follow, let's take a moment to thank today's sponsor. Did you guys know that I managed to somehow harness the weather and get myself my own land cloud? Well, if you didn't know, that boy is Casper the Friendly Floof, and that is my sweetest bean, my cutest puppo, and he has his own YouTube channel. So he's sponsoring today's video and he only pays me in dog treats since that's what he's got. And that's okay for me because I give them right back to him anyway. But if you want to check out his channel and see what he's up to, you can go on YouTube to Casper the Friendly Floof and it should pop right up. He uploads every Saturday morning. So after dealing with me for a week and all the serious and sometimes dark topics we cover, you can go there Saturday morning and see a cute little land cloud just hopping around and doing his thing. So yes, this was a plug for Casper's channel, but more importantly, he's just so damn cute. How could you not? I feel like it would be a sin to deprive you all from knowing that he even exists. So if you wanna check him out on YouTube, Casper the Friendly Floof. All right, back to the history of Satan now. And now it's time to discuss the witch hunts. As National Geographic explains, After the Reformation divided Europe into Protestant and Catholic in the early 16th century, both sides hunted witches. During this period of religious reform, rulers wanted to prove their godliness. They perceived the unholy and evil as a source of unrest and disorder. Witch hunting could be seen as an extension of the Protestant Reformation as Paris ministers and government authorities sought to create a godly state. 
in which everyone worshiped correctly and sin and ungodliness were wiped out. In numerical terms, Scotland's witch hunts were severe. Between 1590 and 1662, five intense panics erupted over Scotland, 1590 to 91, 1597, 1628 to 1631, 1649 to 1650, and 1661 to 62. Though scholars are divided on how many were executed by these witch hunts, most place the number between 50 to 100,000. One figure reached by taking the number of known trials and multiplying it by the average of trial and conviction was 60,000. Obviously there could be many unknown trials for all we know, it could be far higher and these are just estimates. The witchcraft trials were, if nothing else, horrific proof of early modern Europe's fascination with the devil and its willingness to define the marginalized as his servants. Though I'm not about to say, oh, this is the first time we saw the devil being evoked to fear monger others, this era most definitely represents a marked change. Just a few centuries prior, the devil was a trickster. And a few centuries before that, his role seemed completely passive and was mankind that was to blame for their own woes. However, when the Black Death came along, some higher power needed to be at work for the complete and utter devastation. It's also said that though King James VI didn't show great interest in witchcraft before 1590, the North Berwick witch hunts inspired him to write the infamous book, Daemonology. The National Library of Scotland source states, in 1590, James married Anne of Denmark on return from Scandinavia to Scotland. The King's ship was battered by severe storms and it was suggested that the dark arts were being used by his enemies to prevent him from returning safely to Scotland. This was the alleged work of the North Berwick witches who confessed after torture to acting with the devil against James. Agnes Sampson was one of those accused of trying to kill James using witchcraft. During her confession, she claimed that she attached parts of a corpse to a dead cat, sailed to sea in a sieve, and then put the cat into the sea to create a storm to shipwreck the king. This direct threat to the king, who the devil reportedly viewed as his chief enemy on earth, seemed to provoke James's interest in witchcraft. James personally questioned many of the accused, but remained skeptical about the reality of the deeds they confessed to. This changed when Agnes Sampson said she could prove she was a witch by recounting to James his conversation with his new bride on their wedding night. Agnes must have convinced James as from this point, he was persuaded of the reality of the threat against him. This was written to convince skeptics of the reality of witchcraft. And yet again, the narrative about the devil began to evolve and change. He wrote that so many women could be witches, whereas far fewer men were accused because their sex is frailer than men. So it is easier to be entrapped in the gross snares of the devil, as well as proven to be true by the serpent deceiving Eve at the beginning. Only a millennia and a half later, which really isn't that long considering this supposedly happened at the beginning of time, was the connection between the devil and the serpent made in the first place. Again, you are absolutely free to believe what you want, but I find it fascinating and a little worrying if I'm being honest, how these belief systems can change, adapt and evolve all thanks to the influence of a few select people. Witchcraft itself, according to James's book, was a secret conspiracy between humans and demons and the faithful's only hope was to appeal to God. King James VI, by the way, is also known for the King James Bible. Same guy, in case you're wondering. When the witch hunts ended, however, we began to enter a new era. In the year 1667, Milton's famous epic poem, Paradise Lost was released. The poem begins with Satan, traitor angel, cast into hell after rebelling against his creator. He further emphasized the theme of free will that I'm sure many of you who are forced to read this epic poem for English class probably have heard about. 
Milton didn't believe in the idea of predestination and as some would argue, he even painted Satan as a sympathetic figure. Some articles to this day describe Satan as such. Paradise Lost Satan is the unsung hero of those who have experienced the pressure of the quelling boot of authority on them. He is the ultimate rabble rouser and contrarian and seeks to rile those similarly oppressed to snatch back autonomy and authority. However, a better description of him might be that he is the unsung anti-hero. His goal is still ultimately destructive and he ignores any redeeming parts of the authority such that his quest is fueled by his own purposefully blind bias. Pretty odd considering that this was just a few years after the witch trials, right? Well, as it may turn out, even in the late 1500s into the 1600s, it was becoming incredibly skeptical and doubtful that demonic possession and witchcraft even existed. The view of witchcraft and Satan was changing yet again. Reginald Scott published The Discovery of Witchcraft, which according to my source, was very widely read in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. It was a central text in witchcraft debates and there were numerous challenges to Scott's beliefs not least from King James and his own book on witchcraft demonology, as well as a smaller number of defenses. Because of the comprehensiveness of the discovery of witchcraft, it was a useful source of information on supernatural beliefs and practices, regardless of whether the reader agreed with Scott's skepticism or not. However, it was also important to note that Scott was not a folklorist researching and accurately recording popular beliefs for posterity. He was using these stories to support his own agenda of persuading the reader against belief in the supernatural. This age of skepticism and the age of torturing and murdering thousands for supposedly being witches, yeah, it's definitely two strange things to overlap. But I suppose at the time you had people like Reginald Scott and people like King James VI. It's oddly comforting to know that not everyone seemed to be all for burning witches at the stake at that time, right? Beliefs about religion and Satan were challenged by Hume, Diderot, and Voltaire. Voltaire famously called Paradise Lost a disgusting fantasy and sat the belief in hell and demonic beings as a trick the church had played over centuries. This breakaway from the church didn't necessarily result in a decline in the belief in the demonic. The scientific revolution had its own fair share of fascination with the occult. However, the tides had turned yet again, and it was here that we enter the Age of Enlightenment. More practical magic was a significant part of English publishing in this era, which I know sounds pretty strange to begin with since we view magic as largely fantasy today. But according to my source, in 1720, one of the most popular books of the day, The New Fortune Book, offered magical cures and love potions. The very concept of belief in the devil was challenged and he was, quote, wielded as a weapon against the very orthodoxy that had first created him. Satan became not a figure of evil, but rather a subversive force that challenged oppression by secular and sacred authorities, end quote. We saw this implication of the devil being an unsung antihero, a literary figure in Milton's Paradise Lost. And in the 1790s book, Marriage of Heaven and Hell, poet William Blake portrayed Satan as a subversive spirit who embodies human emotion and the possibility of liberation from reason and orthodoxy. Thomas Paine's book, Age of Reason, released four years later, believed that America represented a new imperium of reason where, as he calls, quote, the stupid Bible of the churches, end quote, would be forgotten by a new deist creed. Paine, as well as his sometimes ally, Thomas Jefferson, thought that Satan couldn't live in the brave new world of an enlightened American Republic. Obviously, they were wrong. Paine and Jefferson themselves were even accused by political opponents of orating under the influence of the Dark Lord. And many criticized Paine's deistic ideas, suggesting he wrote them under satanic inspiration. 
Even so, while Satan was seen as a sympathetic figure embodying the religious sentiments of that era, you still didn't wanna be associated with him. Some, on the other hand, like the ex-communist spy Whitaker Chambers, have since written about this being a time where the devil went underground to make men think he didn't exist. He wrote an essay for Life Magazine in 1948 in which a pessimist is speaking with the devil himself. Here's an excerpt speaking to this era. It was the 18th century, the enlightenment had begun. As I read Voltaire and Diderot, Locke and Helvetius, and pored over the Principa Mathematica of Sir Isaac Newton, I saw that mankind had reached one of the decisive turning points in its history. The Middle Ages were liquidated. Faith in the human mind had supplemented faith in God. I saw that hell must write progress on its banners and science in its methods. What's wrong with progress in science? Asked the pessimist. Absolutely nothing, said the devil. Only the most primitive mind would suppose there was. They are, in fact, positively good. That was the nub of my inspiration. Here Thoreau, hell had tried to destroy man by seducing him to evil. My revolutionary thought was to destroy man by seducing him through good. Intellectual pride has always been my specific sin. And like most sinners, I have always felt secretly a little proud of my fault. Now I perceived all mankind had sinned the same sin. I saw that hell had only to move with the tide and leave the rest to rationalism, liberalism, and universal compulsory education. Only hell must be careful not to show its hand. That is why hell went underground. That is why for 250 years, I have ceased to exist. It was easier than I anticipated. Though it wouldn't be accurate to say no one believed in Satan during this time or that the occult completely vanished, belief in Satan was definitely questioned. The devil that had been accused of seducing women in the 1500s and 1600s wasn't nearly as prominent. Of course, this didn't exactly last. In the 1900s, a series of revivals took place, later called the Second Great Awakening. Many churches, particularly Methodist and Baptist churches, saw a massive increase in membership. Soul winning, as Britannica puts it, became the primary function of ministry. The age of reason was denounced as atheist Bible and the pushback against deism and skepticism lasted until the 1870s. Christine Hareman, writing about the religious awakening in the South states that as soon as evangelicals began in earnest to proselytize among Southerners, Satan in some form suddenly seemed everywhere. A name that dropped easily and often from the lips of every convert. Millions of immigrants from Ireland, Italy, and Eastern Europe migrated to the States around this time, bringing a deeply held Catholic faith with them. The American devil gained strength again, and by the 1900s, Satan wasn't just contracting and cavorting with witches. According to the book, Satan and Puritanism, he would attack and possess individual souls who made no pact with him in the way witches had allegedly done. Most frightening to evangelicals, Satan could hinder the spread of the gospel and damn souls who had not heard the good news. The devil of American evangelicals turned his wiles primarily toward the purpose of preventing conversion. The enlightenment thinkers had mocked the idea of the devil, but now during the great awakening and the second great awakening, the American evangelical movement gave Satan yet another new face. Satan was lurking around every corner, hungry for souls, once again in this active role. Evangelical minister Samuel Stebbins in his 1806 pamphlet entitled The Policy of the Devil wrote about how Satan's primary work was to prevent the spread of the gospel. And again, this theme became common in the demonology of the 19th century revivalism. 
The devil worked everywhere and with a much more insidious plan than most 18th century evangelicals realized. Satan had a tactical finesse. The Satan of the Hebrew Bible may have lashed out at Job with disease and disaster. The devil of Puritan and 18th century New England enthralled souls with witchcraft and later direct possession of their bodies, think Salem witch trials. But the American Satan of the early 19th century used more subtle tactics. He filled minds with, according to Samuel Stebbins, an invincible prejudice against revivalism while simultaneously spreading slander and suspicion that created disrespect for ministers of the gospel. The devil, to again quote Stebbins, was a politic genius and sought the most successful rather than the most dramatic means of attaining his ends. Of course, some say that Satan has simply been used as a scapegoat throughout history. I can understand that perspective as well. After all, during the witch burnings, any association with Satan or the devil was seen as punishable by torture and death. And more often than not, witch hunts were about getting rid of the marginalized and the powerless. We needed someone to blame for the Black Death. Surely it had to be a supernatural cause. So the idea of Satan causing disease or God punishing man were floated around at the time. Payne and Jefferson, as we saw earlier, were accused of being inspired by the devil himself in attempts to discredit them. Then during this second great awakening period and the revivals, Satan would attempt to steal your soul. So if you didn't believe in the evangelical movement, then hey, it's the devil's fault. Again, you are absolutely entitled to believe what you want. Personally, I just find it interesting how the devil has changed so much throughout the years from basically non-existent to the reason for why everything's terrible. One survey conducted as recently as 2013 actually shows that many Americans do still believe in a literal devil. And from a purely psychological standpoint, it's this belief that matters and affects our lives more than anything. One source reads, regardless of whether the devil actually exists, belief in the power of human evil seems to have significant and important consequences for how we approach problem solving of real world wrongdoing. When we see people's antisocial behavior as the product of an enduring and powerful malice, we see few options beyond a comprehensive and immediate assault on the perpetrators. They cannot be helped and any attempts to do so would be a waste of time and resources. But if we accept the message from decades of social psychological research that at least some instances of violence and malice are not the result of pure evil, that otherwise decent individuals can, under certain circumstances, be compelled to commit horrible acts, even atrocities, then the results of these studies serve as an important cautionary tale. The longer we cling to strong beliefs about the existence of pure evil, the more aggressive and antisocial we become. And we may be aggressing towards individuals who are in fact redeemable, individuals who are not intrinsically and immutably motivated by the desire to intentionally cause harm to others. That may be the greatest trick the devil has ever pulled. And yet, once again, things might be changing. Just as the devil changes over time, so does religion in general, honestly. Every 500 years or so, there's a pattern where old expressions of Christianity is refurbished and revitalized, while a new, more vital form is created, as written by Phyllis Tickle in her book, The Great Emergence. Some of these periods are the Great Reformation, as we discussed, and the Great Schism. On July 16th, 1054, Patriarch of Constantinople, Michael Cyrilius was excommunicated starting the Great Schism that created the two largest denominations in Christianity, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox faiths. Today, the two branches of Christianity remain distinct expressions of a similar faith. Roman Catholicism is the single largest Christian denomination with more than a billion followers around the world. Eastern Orthodoxy is the second largest Christian denomination with more than 260 million followers. 
Eastern Orthodoxy includes national churches, such as Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. 500 years before this, it was the Great Decline and Fall, which of course refers to the fall of the Roman Empire. Some books, as one by Edward Gibbon, write that Christianity hastened the fall, though Gibbon was said to be influenced by Voltaire and later called a pagan. One excerpt from his volumes on the Decline and Fall reads, As the happiness of a future life is the great object of religion, we may hear without surprise or scandal that the introduction or at least the abuse of Christianity had some influence on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. The clergy successfully preached the doctrines of patience and pusillanimity. The active virtues of society were discouraged and the last remains of military spirit were buried in the cloister. A large portion of public and private wealth was consecrated to the spacious demands of charity and devotion, and the soldier's pay was lavished on the useless multitudes of both sexes who could only plead the merits of abstinence and chastity. Religious precepts are easily obeyed, which indulge and sanctify the natural inclinations of their votaries, but the pure and genuine influence of Christianity may be traced in its beneficial, though imperfect, effects on the barbarian proselytes of the North. If the decline of the Roman Empire was hastened by the conversion of Constantine, his victorious religion broke the violence of the fall and mollified the ferocious temper of the conquerors. 500 years before that, of course, was the Great Transformation, the time period where religious traditions began and breakthroughs created Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Taoism, monotheism, and philosophical rationalism. Today, some argue that we're going through another change. A distrust of institutions is forcing mainline Protestant Christianity to become less hierarchical and more communal. I'm sure there's a massive amount of reasons as to why Christianity is changing to this day. And I couldn't possibly cite all of them without reading the book and taking another 30 minutes to explain it. But everything from the effects of Darwin, Einstein, technological advances, they've all played a part in this. Now, obviously, whether you agree or not, I think it's an interesting discussion to be had. And if the church and religion is really changing, then I've got to wonder if Satan's image is changing along with it. After all, after the satanic panic and the lingering fear and upset that it caused, there's certainly going to be some people that detract from that, which by the way, the satanic panic is getting its own episode entirely. Just as many Christians fought back against pain and deism, many others may feel oppressed by Christianity, such as Lil Nas X, and they're coming forward with their own view of Satan and Christianity. And they're pushing back against the view of Satan trying to steal their souls, especially for just being themselves. All in all though, as we've seen, this isn't a black and white issue. I know this was kind of a general overview, but I figure it's kind of something to at least break the surface and begin opening that discussion. Who or what is Satan exactly? And what a better way than to look into the past and see what it is exactly he used to stand through through the various civilizations and years. And seeing the rearing of Satan being this evil monster that's corrupting souls while at the same time condemning gay people for literally decades at this point that they're going to hell, it's kind of funny to see how Lil Nas X turned this into a whole thing, really. And only because he was taking control of a narrative that was pushed onto him. And then it's like, oh, you're going to hell. And he's like, okay, pole dances down to hell. And everyone's like, wait, no, not like that. I don't know. It's just an interesting thing. It definitely made me think and definitely made me dig into the history of Satan throughout the years. So I hope you learned something from this. Um, again, I'm not trying to discredit anyone's beliefs. Feel free to believe whatever it is that you want. It's just something that I found interesting and wanted to dig into a little bit more. So 
Thank you so much for making it to another Prism into the Past. If you enjoyed this episode and you learned something, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you never miss a new episode whenever it comes out. Love you guys, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.